thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 128, Why is Hitler Being Bitchy? Last time, in early 1937, as Gustav Krupp put his almost full support behind Goering's four-year plan to ready the country for war, the works never stopped simultaneously producing weapons of war, but also trains and bridges. Hitler wanted only tanks and warships made, and his quota would be filled by those in Essen. But the concern run by Gustav for his wife Bertha, the real owner, would never stop obsessing about the bottom line. Hence, goods for other countries were still being made. As we have seen, Goering himself came to Essen to talk sense, to demand that all non-military applications be halted. But he was told, nine. Then de Fuhrer himself got involved, made the same demands, but was given the same response. Nine. In fact, going even further, Gustav kept a Jew, a talented electrical engineer, on his staff, despite the Nazis' objections. Until, that is, Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, in November of 1938. Still, Krupp took the unprecedented step and gave the party man eight months' pay. Again, Gustav was the king of his castle. Or rather, it must be remembered, in truth he was only the prince consort. Berta was the true queen and owner of everything, Krupp. The main workshops in Essen, comprised of 81 factories, a controlling interest in 110 other companies, which included the Skoda Works, the largest arms manufacturer in Austria-Hungary, which itself held controlling interest in many other firms, controlling shares in 142 other German corporations, and dozens upon dozens of coal mines and ore pits throughout the world, a string of hotels, rows of banks, and a cement works. Then there were the estates producing grain and livestock, just in case the world economy turned south. But with Berlin ordering everything war-related under the sun, that was not a prospect anyone considered. And Berta's prince was Alfred, the oldest child. Born in August of 1907, the young Alfred was daily told of his destiny, that he would one day rule the concern. But until then, as he aged, more responsibility was placed on his narrow shoulders and slim frame. Until, when his time came, he would run the Vorstadt, the cabinet, the Procura, the subcabinet, and the leader's special assistants, the Aufsichtsrat. However, he, like Gustav, would always be answerable to the queen, his mother Berta, until her death. Only then would Alfred truly own Krupp. As with any kingdom, the heir's life could never be at risk. Hence, he was not allowed to join the armed forces, whereas his younger brother, Klaus Krupp, would become a Luftwaffe uber-lieutenant. But he would crash to his death in early 1940, when testing a new oxygen mask made for high altitudes. But with all this talk of kingdoms and princes, and Alfred was a prince in every way, there has to be, somewhere in the future, a dragon that must be slain. 
and Alfred had such a dragon in his midst, though he was quite unaware of it. By the fall of 1938, those of the elite, across every sector of German life, came together in Dusseldorf to celebrate the accomplishments of Goering's four-year plan. Not only was Germany readying for war and all the profits that came from that, but the country's economy was leaving the rest of the world behind. It was truly heady days for those who owned the means of production. However, Gustav, now 68 years old, did not attend the gathering. He only left Villa Hugel for the likes of Hitler, Mussolini, and a few Japanese notables. Instead, he sent his two main lieutenants, Alfred and Edwald Oscar Ludwig Loser. Alfred had by now received a Master of Engineering degree and had, to boot, brought home the bronze medal in the 8-meter class sailing during the 1936 Olympics. Hence, he had earned a spot in Gustav's cabinet, the Vorstand. The other man, Loser, well, though he was an incredible administrator, the truth was, it looked like he was going to be the one to succeed Gustav. In 1937, Alfred, then 30 years old, fell in love with the divorcee Annelise Lampere and married her soon after. His mother, Bertha, disapproved to the point that Alfred was almost removed from the line to replace Gustav, and in fact, the issue was still up in the air. Hence, Gustav, as was his duty to protect the concern, shopped around for his own possible successor. But more than that, the two men, Alfred and Lozer, were very different in terms of personality and outlook, so they could never have really been close in the first place. But now Alfred knew he was working with his enemy. But what he did not know was that Lozer had a secret of such magnitude that had he known, Lozer could have been shot on the spot by the nearest Nazi with a pistol which is why Lozer kept his distance from Alfred. By 1938, there was already an organization that wanted to oppose and replace Hitler. Building up the country's armed forces was one thing. Bringing back German pride was acceptable to almost everyone. But purposefully stirring a path to war, that could not be countenanced by some. And those who thought as such among the elites, began to whisper to each other. In fact, by 1938, a shadow government had been formed, ready to move into power should something happen to Hitler, from assassination to a political death, as he tread the high wire of international politics. And Lozer, either the number two or three man of Krupp, was a member of the shadow government. Just imagine what someone with Krupp's name and means could do to sow discord within the Nazi leadership. All that aside, Alfred, the heir, was distant to everyone, not just Lozer, both from personality and from training. He would be the cannon king one day, and all his consuming responsibility would be the concern. So he embraced solitude by having a 15-bedroom house built on the family grounds. Of course, this building 
was surrounded by barbed wire and was watched over by a sentry. In it, Alfred would spend countless hours drinking and smoking, developing film of photos he took as he traveled the world. The pictures were not great. Photography was not one of his talents, but he enjoyed himself. Two of his few passions were sailing and seeking out danger. Either driving too fast or sailing into a Force 8 gale, the young man who would one day be handed the world sought something. Danger, but more than that. As someone who never wanted for anything and one day would be able to buy himself anything, and he would, perhaps he sought to feel to break away from his training that demanded that he be aloof from the world, which was, he was told, the best way to eventually run his part of it. As for his marriage, that couldn't withstand Bertha's hammering. Thus, when the divorce came, Alfred went deeper into himself. But as he later told a colleague, my life has never depended on me, but on the course of history. And he understood that. Still, there was much sadness in the man. By June of 1937, Hitler, with his country's armed forces years ahead of their neighbors in terms of build-up and preparation, decided it was time to expand the Third Reich. Of course, one has to start slowly when taking over the world. So Berlin's first view towards European domination would be limited to taking advantage of politically favorable opportunities. As only four copies were printed of this decision, it's probably true that Gustav nor Alfred were given a copy, but that does not mean they were not informed of said decision. But that decision would be altered on November 5th of that same year, 1937, during a four-hour speech given by Hitler to his generals. It was then that Hitler told the men, though Germany has come far, the fatherland has so much further to go. However, he, Hitler, had solved all the problems he could without the use of force. And force is like a genie in a bottle. Once it's out, there's no way it can ever be stopped up. As Hitler said in his speech, if one accepts as the basis of the following exposition the result of force with its risks, the only remaining questions are when and where. But the where had already been decided, really as far back as the 1920s, when Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf that the East held the land needed by his growing country. Still, Der Fuhrer had a few tricks up his sleeve. Austria would be incorporated into the Reich by March of the following year, 1938, and the Sudetenland Germans' supposed wails of oppression would allow him, through the Munich Agreement, to grab western Czechoslovakia in September of that same year. But it would be Germany's taking of the rest of Czechoslovakia in March of 1939 that would cause British Prime Minister Chamberlain to make the Anglo-Polish military alliance with them, the country that most European leaders saw as Berlin's next target. Back when Hitler told his generals to prepare for war, he gave them 
an expected starting date range, by 1943 or 45. However, for various reasons, diplomatic, personal, and with Krupp giving the German army what it needed, in impressive numbers, de Fuhrer had moved up his timetable. On March 17, 1939, Hitler once again called his generals together, and this time he told them his next move would be against the Poles, but that it would be open warfare this time. For surely, diplomacy with Warsaw, being backed by London and France, would not negotiate away the Polish corridor and the free city of Danzig. And yet, a week before this meeting, Hitler had informed Alfred of his intentions. Not only did Berlin have a few specific orders to place for this operation, but Hitler was personally asking that the concern stop all arms shipments to Poland. The leader had long ago given up on demanding that Essen stop selling arms to other countries, including Poland and the USSR, the two countries where Germany was to acquire its living space. So the request was put in, and Gustav and Alfred, the super-patriots, according to some, were only too happy to oblige. Thus orders went out from them. All exports to Poland are to be stopped immediately. Contracts should not be cancelled. Polish customers pressing for delivery can be given evasive answers, such as consignment not complete or freight cars lacking, etc. As if any of this were possible in Krupp's Essen. But as impressive as the Wehrmacht was, it was still growing. Hence, most of Germany's armor would have to be used in invading Poland. So Hitler told Alfred that whatever Essen could do to strengthen the West Wall from a French offensive would be of paramount importance. As fate had placed Essen in Western Germany, the concern already had its motivation for protecting the back door as Nazi Germany attacked in the East. However, both Hitler and Alfred would luck out, as the French did not attack, while the bulk of Hitler's forces were on the other side of the country. As the occupants of the Villa Hugo had advanced warning of Poland, tension mounted over the summer there of 1939. Of course, no one spoke of it. They didn't have to. Everyone remembered, or had been told numerous times, of the French occupation in 1923. That could not be allowed to happen again. But the last thing Gustav needed, now that he was 69 but looked older, was tension and stress. As he looked at his children in various uniforms, sometimes he wept. This caused concern for Gustav's private doctor, as this was a most uncrup and un-Gustav reaction. But truth be told, Gustav with his mind beginning to fade, blamed Hitler for the coming war. He had found out that after the Munich Agreement, Hitler was anything but pleased with the accommodating Chamberlain. As Hitler was overheard by some nearby SS troops, that curl, or chap, had spoiled my entry into Prague. But now, de Fuhrer had no doubt that the troops of Czechoslovakia 
would be no match for his. However, as Gustav had told him, Berlin should respect the weapons coming from the Skoda works, for he had received reports on their quality. Still, Hitler, by now, was ready for open warfare and angered that the spineless Britain had not given it to him. But when the story got back to Gustav, his, again, uncrup response was, I don't understand the Fuhrer at all. He has just signed a wonderful agreement. Why is he being bitchy? Now, until this moment, when Gustav had backed down Bertha about the Austrian corporal, Hitler had only been spoken of great respect and Gustav's presence. But now, this coming from the man himself. When Alfred heard of this, as he would hear of everything his father did, he too became concerned with the canon king's mental faculties. If this weren't enough, and it was, Gustav, when the request from Hitler came to cut all Polish orders, developed a tick as he knew war was coming, which affected his walking. Then he started sharing his belief that surely Hitler was bluffing, as he had before. Poland would give in at the last moment, and Germany could return to saber-rattling, speeches, and SS parades. After all, the best profits come from the fear of war, not the actual fighting itself, where the houses of workers and their factories could be destroyed. No, something had to be done to head off this madness. But instead of calling in his son, Alfred, whose English was perfect, the canon king called in another aide, Karl Fuss, who also spoke English. It was the leader's intent to write a letter to a British businessman who could, hopefully, get word to London of Hitler's intent regarding Poland. And a second letter, which was clearly treason, was sent to an American industrialist. It also mentioned Hitler's intent towards Poland and that the West had better stand up to the man in Berlin or they would all be engulfed in another general war. But it was too late. As powerful as Gustav Krupp was, he could not alter Hitler's dreams of glory. In the early morning of September 1st, 1939, the Germans roared across the Polish border using the tanks of Krupp von Bolen und Halbach, no nobler steeds in all the world. When the news of the invasion was sent out over German radio, Alfred Krupp sat around the radio with many of his ballistic experts listening for updates, and the news they received satisfied their professionalism and pride as Krupp workers. It seemed that Germany was about to have another victory, this one on the field of battle, and certainly in part to the work of the men and women of Essen. One report noted the latest tank development by Krupp has gained particular distinction during the campaign in Poland. There have been surprisingly few breakdowns. And the internal memorandum pointed out that the fact that we manufactured both tanks and anti-tank guns stood us in good stead and gave us a knowledge of both tanks and how to combat them. 
Gustav had been right not to go to his son for advice in thwarting Hitler. Gustav may have been loyal to Germany, but his son was Hitler's man through and through. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 129, Der Grosta Krupp. Last time, the war that the aging Gustav Krupp feared came to Europe. Germany invaded Poland, and in response, Britain and France declared war on Hitler's empire. To be sure, Prime Minister Chamberlain had put Hitler on notice. Between the fall of the rump state of Czechoslovakia and Germany's invasion to the east, the Prime Minister had declared, Is this the end of an old adventure or the beginning of a new? Is this the last attack upon a small state, or is it to be followed by others? Is this, in effect, a step in the direction of an attempt to dominate the world by force? If so, and if Herr Hitler assumed that this nation has so lost its fiber that it will not take part to the utmost of its powers in resisting such a challenge, he was making a fatal miscalculation. And now that war had been enjoined between the two, it was time to find out who indeed had been mistaken. As for Alfred Krupp, he was riding high. In his first annual report of the concern, on October 1, 1939, just days after Poland surrendered, he concluded, We take great pride in the fact that our products have come up to expectations during the war, and we have been strengthened in our desire to do everything in our power to maintain the technical quality of German ordnance equipment, thus playing our part in reducing Wehrmacht casualties. He had already mentioned the company's profit for the last year, of some 12 million marks, and indeed, both the country, in the form of its army, and the concern, could only conceive of more successes in the coming years. But it would be inadequate to say that Krupp was just another arms manufacturer, though one of the largest in the world. The concern was an equal partner, though reluctantly, through Gustav, when war came. To be sure, he was at Hitler's side and had de Defer's ear on major decisions. But when Alfred took over, there would be no hesitancy. And Essen was now a major factor in Hitler's plans, as it must be said that the leader's victims were Krupp's as well and their partnership grew only more intertwined. Two months before Operation Wesserbung, Hitler's attack on Denmark, Norway, Krupp had its Copenhagen agent there send back information on Danish armament emplacements, all in OKW, or High Command of the Armed Forces, codes. Of course, Krupp's man did not know what Hitler and Gustav knew so left vital information out of his report. When Hitler's fleet sailed out on the morning of April 9, 1940, bound for Oslo, it did not know of what was waiting for it at the 85-year-old fortress 
of Oscar Park. There, purchased many years ago, were .28 centimeter Krupp cannon. Though ancient, the weapons had been made of fine Krupp steel and still worked magnificently. On came the German fleet. But thanks to the Krupp guns, before too long, the heavy cruiser Lutzow was severely damaged. However, the Blucher was sunk, with the loss of some 1,600 German seamen. Also on board, and now at the bottom, were Gestapo officers, who were going to announce that Vikum Quisling was now the country's dictator. The German high command was outraged by this. However, Hitler, being a realist, was more sanguine. He understood international politics as well as international business, at least on a basic level. It was done. The guns had been sold a long time ago, but still, Norway would fall. Hitler also stayed calm when he was told of the last sale to Russia of a warship that had been intended for Poland. No, Krupp and Berlin were linked in victory or defeat, never to be severed. Gustav and Alfred wanted to make sure that this kind of mistake would not happen again. Not that it was bad for business. Their main buyer, Berlin, would never stop giving them orders, and word of what the old Krupp guns did to the German fleet was the best PR anyone in Essen could ask for. Still, it was awkward. Back when Hitler issued his Directive Number 6, the invasion of the West, to go through the areas of Luxembourg, Belgium, and Holland on October 10, 1939, he made sure Gustav and Alfred were also informed. This allowed them to halt orders to those respective countries. But when Denmark and Norway were taken, the requests for information as to why orders were not being sent through to Amsterdam became more urgent. But now that war proper had come to Europe, the Krupps, like Hitler, dispensed with the sleight of hand. The orders and questions were simply not to be answered. This evasion went on until Directive Number 6 was launched. Then the questions stopped coming to them. The West was now a part of the Third Reich. By the spring of 1941, Berlin and Essen had this down to a science. When Hitler told Gustav and Alfred that the Balkans were the next to fall under the Nazi sway, weapons orders bound for there dried up. But more than that, this time, the concern sent to Berlin a list of all Krupp guns sent to Belgrade and Athens for at least the last two decades. Some guns delivered in the 1800s, and were still quite powerful, were also included on the report. Getting back to the war in the West, when the Germans moved out on May 10, 1940, the attack plan was the reverse of the Schlieffen plan of the Great War. This would allow the aggressors to take advantage of the defenders' expectations of what would happen, and Krupp's panzers. As the American reporter William Shire described the Wehrmacht, utilizing Krupp steel, it was unprecedented 
in warfare for size, concentration, mobility, and striking power. By May 18th, the war in the West was all but over, though most in Germany, and indeed the other participating countries as well, did not know this. Simply, the Panzers were moving faster than could be reported, even sometimes back to Berlin. By mid-May, Hitler's, or rather Krupp's, seven Panzer divisions had encircled Britain's expeditionary force, many Belgian soldiers, and three French armies. It was then just a matter of tightening the noose. On that same day, May 18th, Alfred Krupp was meeting with two men to possibly buy a painting. The art historian, hoping to make a hefty commission this day, badly needed the money. As he had been openly critical of the Nazis, less and less work had come his way. Indeed, if the Nazi stalwart Alfred knew of the man's public political statements, he would have not even shown up at the restaurant. But before the agent could get underway with his speech, Alfred silenced him. It was time for the two o'clock update on the radio. Krupp's party gathered around, as did the other diners. When the names of villages recently captured were announced, a local businessman pulled out a map he had and pointed at the locations for all to see. The report ended and the radio was switched off. That's when Alfred got down to work. The painting was forgotten. As he was in the business, Alfred knew the companies and their owners of the now all but conquered Belgium and Holland. Right away, he began to decide which German industrialists would get what. As for those current owners, Alfred said nonchalantly, we will have them arrested. This kind of acquisition had been started with the taking of Poland. Just before hostilities broke out, Hitler asked the industrialists for a list of holdings that had been lost by them in 1918. Gustav had not hesitated to demand his property in Lorraine, though he had already been compensated for it by Berlin many years ago. This was the opening of a floodgate in where many German elites comprised wish lists of foreign property once it came within the Third Reich. Of course, on paper, the properties once taken over were leased to various German citizens, but really the buildings were just taken outright. But thinking beyond simple theft, Goering let the German magnates know that there was a long-term strategy as well. Quote, one of the goals of the German economic office is the increase of German influence in foreign enterprises. It cannot be seen yet if and in which way the peace treaty will deal with this transfer of holdings and so on. But it is necessary even now that every opportunity be used to make it possible for the German economy to gain a foothold even during the war. As for the Krupps being the arbiters of who would get what confiscated property, Hitler had no problem with that, for what Essen agents were giving him was much more valuable. As one country after another fell to German forces, Krupp agents already in-country 
would take the military to whatever hidden troves of weapons the victim countries had, stashed away. It was vital for the Germans to make sure that any resistance fighters did not get hold of any cache of guns or explosives. Still, this new position of Alfred's was made official when he was made the chairman of the Reich Iron Association and the Reich Coal Association. But by the end of 1941, Operation Barbarossa was turning out to be not the knockout blow that was to push Russia from the war. The men of Berlin were stunned and only then disappointed. The same could be said of Krupp's Vorstand, or cabinet. However, they, and Hitler would do this later, started reminiscing about the good old days of 1939 in 1940, when things went like clockwork. And then Alfred entered into a darker phase of his connection with Hitler. Along with Albert Speer, the Reich Minister of Armaments and War Production, he and Alfred, representing the Reich Iron Association, decided in July of 1942, as the war on the Eastern Front still lingered, that more drastic measures were needed. A report read, Alfred Krupp, representing RVE, attended a session of the Central Planning Board with Speer and others, in the course of which it was decided to impress 45,000 Russian civilians into a steel plant, 120,000 prisoners of war, and 6,000 Russian other civilians into the coal mines, and to place the medical standards for recruiting prisoners of war lower than those required of Germans employed in the coal mines. Which meant the coal and ore coming from fallen countries, along with the now foreign slave labor, the Reich could produce more weapons of war at a faster rate, for Hitler would have need of such increases with the stubborn Russians and the stubborn British not to mention the now-fighting forces of the United States, all aligned against the fatherland. From France alone, Nazi Germany, with Alfred's help, was taking out of France $7 billion worth of goods each year of its occupation. And it was Alfred who wrote to Hitler that now, as the Americans were in the war, why should Germany not take American interests within their reach. One of Alfred's first victims was the Singer Sewing Machine Company, at least its holdings within Europe. But as Hitler and Alfred had already crossed the line of international law, what was the point of stopping now? And they both knew their actions were illegal, for the Hague Peace Conference of 1899 had specifically said, if, as a result of war action, a belligerent occupies a territory of the adversary. He does not, thereby, acquire the right to dispose of property in that territory. The economy of the belligerently occupied territory is to be kept intact, just as the inhabitants of the occupied country must not be forced to help the enemy in the waging of war against their own country or their own country's allies so must the economic assets of the occupied territory not be used in such a manner. But to zoom in 
even further, to give Alfred his due, or rather, his blame. Hitler may have railed against and flouted the Versailles Treaty, but he had not done so against the Hague Articles. That was Alfred's doing, and he knew what the consequences would be should they lose the war. When the Allies eventually marched into Essen, a letter was found in Alfred's files that read, Sooner or later, the Allies will have to draw up their lists of war criminals. It is expected that those who have ordered or executed looting of all sorts will not be overlooked. It is an undisputed principle that spoilization of occupied territories is considered to be a war crime. The good news was that this wouldn't matter as long as they won. Hence, more slave labor would be procured by Krupps as the war went on. By such tactics, Alfred, when he officially took over the concern, controlled one of the largest economic and industrial empires of the world, holding possessions in 12 countries from the Ukraine to the Atlantic, from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. Within his grasp were shipyards, ore mines, coal mines, production sites or factories, and numerous administrative buildings, the most prestigious one being in Paris, just nine blocks away from the Arc de Triomphe at 141 Boulevard Haussmann. Before France fell, the building belonged to the Society Bakri Ferres, a Jewish firm. But in the spring of 1941, a Yugoslav Jew named Robert Rothschild bought 91% of the factory's shares. To be sure, when the Germans came to Paris, Rothschild fled, but then wanted to return once France was divided between Hitler and Vichy. After all, the building was being used to build tractors, and now that the war was over for France, it was time to get back to business. However, Alfred was being told by Hitler of his need for thousands of more trucks as Operation Barbarossa was about to get underway. Hence Alfred wanting the building and its abilities. In the end, he would get it, but at least on paper, it took years, and Rothschild would disappear in Auschwitz in March of 44. He would never be seen again. This was all due to the desire and pressure of Alfred Krupp, who was being pressured by Hitler. Not that Alfred minded, he was with Hitler all the way, in that, one, he believed Der Fuhrer would lead them to ultimate victory, and two, as long as he followed the path Hitler laid down, he would be able to gobble up more and more of Europe's industrial treasures. And Alfred unabashedly desired to be the greatest crop of them all. Hello everyone, Ray here. Sorry this came out late. Uh, life got in the way. Uh, I don't think too many of you heard this last time, so I'm going to repeat it, probably because I said it like in five seconds. But I'm doing another giveaway. I have some Churchill travel mugs, the kind that, that keep your beverages warm or cold. Um, so I'll be giving those away. I've got like four or five of them, something like that. So just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and put um, travel mug 
in the subject line. And I'll do that next month. Um, a, a couple of you have submitted, but I don't think, normally I get a whole bunch of these, so I think maybe just because I said it really quickly at the end of the last one. Uh, most of you probably just turned it off um, and didn't hear it. So anyway, send that in. Good luck to everybody, and I'll be handing those back when I get back from Europe. Um, I'm going to be in Europe for three weeks. Hopefully I can see some of you. I'll be putting the dates and places on the regular uh, next episode that comes out. I'm going to Paris, Corsica, Rome, Florence, and Athens. So um, the first week, three first three weeks of July. Anyway, I'll give you more details later. Come by and say hi. That would be that would be so awesome. Um, so I will see you as soon as I can uh, next month with the next episode, and we'll draw the winners. I'll bring my daughters in. They love doing that kind of stuff. So. Be good to each other, take care, and if you are going on your own vacations, which hopefully most of you are, I hope you have a great time.